Chapter Two of Lorna Doom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shirley Anderson. Lorna Doom by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter Two. An important item. Now the cause of my leaving Tiverton School and the way of it were as follows: on the twenty-ninth day of November in the year of our lord sixteen seventy three the very day when i was twelve years old and had spent all my substance in sweetmeats with which i made treat to the little boys till the large boys ran in and took them we came out of school at five o'clock as the rule is upon tuesdays according to custom we drove the day boys in brave rout down the causeway from the school porch even to the gate where cop has his dwelling and duty little it wrecked us and helped them less that they were our founders citizens and haply his own grand-nephews for he left no direct descendants neither did we much inquire what their lineage was for it had long been fixed among us who were of the house and chambers that these same day-boys were all cads as we had discovered to call it because they paid no groat for their schooling and brought their own commons with them in consumption of these we would help them for our fare in hall fed appetite, and while we ate their victuals, we allowed them freely to talk to us. Nevertheless, we could not feel, when all the victuals were gone, but that these boys required kicking from the premises of Blundell. And some of them were shopkeepers' sons, young grocers, fellmongers, and poulterers, and these, to their credit, seemed to know how righteous it was to kick them. But others were of high family, as any need be in Devon. Carews and bouchiers and bastards, and some of these would turn sometimes, and strike the boy that kicked them. But to do them justice, even these knew that they must be kicked for not paying. After these charity boys were gone, as in contumely we called them, If you break my bag on my head, said one, how will I feed thence to-morrow? And after old Cop, with clang of iron, had jammed the double gates in under the scruff stone archway, whereupon a Latin verses done in brass of small quality, some of us who were not hungry and cared not for the supper bell having sucked much parliament and dumps at my only charges not that i ever bore much wealth but because i had been thrifting it for this time of my birth we were leaning quite at dusk against the iron bars of the gate some six or it may be seven of us small boys all and not conspicuous in the closing of the daylight and the fog that came at eventide else cop would have rated us up the green for he was churly to the little boys when his wife had taken their money. There was plenty of room for all of us, for the gate will hold nine boys close-packed, unless they be fed rankly, whereof is little danger. And now we were looking out on the road, and wishing we could get there, hoping, moreover, to see a good string of pack-horses come by, with troopers to protect them. For the day-boys had brought us word that some intending their way to the town had lain that morning at Samford Peveril, and must be in ere nightfall, because Mr. Faggus was after them. Now Mr. Faggus was my first cousin, and an honour to the family, being a North Malton man of great renown on the highway, from Barron, from Barron town even to London. Therefore, of course, I hoped that he would catch the packman, and the boys were asking my opinion, as of an oracle, about it. A certain boy leaning up against me would not allow my elbow room, and struck me very sadly in the stomach part though his own was full of my parliament, and this I felt so unkindly that I smote him straightway in the face without tarrying to consider it, or weighing the question duly. 
Upon this he put his head down, and presented it so vehemently at the middle of my waistcoat, that for a minute or more my breath seemed drop, as it were, from my pockets, and my life seemed to stop from great want of ease. Before I came to myself again, it had been settled for us that we should move to the ironing-box, as the triangle of turf is called, where the two causeways coming from the school-porch and the hall-porch meet, and our fights were mainly celebrated. Only we must wait until the convoy of horses had passed and then make a ring by candlelight, and the other boys would like it. But suddenly there came round the post, where the letters of our founder are, not from the way of Taunton, but from the side of Loman Bridge, a very small string of horses, only two indeed, counting for one the pony, and a red-faced man on a bigger nag. Praise ye, worshipful masters, he said, being feared of the gateway. Can't tell where our John Rid be? Here be is fay jan rid answered the sharp little chap making a game of john fry's language zowen up then says john fry poking his whip through the bars at us zowen up and put on out the other little chaps pointed at me and some began to hello but i knew what i was about oh john john i cried what's the use of your coming now and peggy over the moors too and it's so cruel cold for her the holidays don't begin till Wednesday fortnight, John, to think of your not knowing that. John Fry leaned forward in the saddle, and turned his eyes away from me, and there was a noise in his throat, like a snail crawling on a window-pane. Oh, us nor's that well enough, Maister Jane. Reckon every old man nor that, without go to school well like you doth. Your mother have kept all the apples up, and old Betty turned the black puddings, and none dare set trap for a blackbird. All for thee, lad, every bit of it now for thee. He checked himself suddenly, and frightened me. I knew that John Fry's way so well. And father, and father, oh, how is father? I pushed the boys right and left as I said it. John, is father up in town? He used to come for me, and leave nobody else to do it. They'll be at the crooked post, other side of the telling-house. Her couldn't leave ours by reason of the Christmas back and coming on, and some of the cider welted. The telling-houses on the moor are rude cots where the shepherds meet to tell their sheep at the end of the pasturing season. He looked at the nag's ears as I said it, and, being up to John Fry's ways, I knew that it was a lie, and my heart fell like a lump of lead, and I leaned back on the stay of the gate, and longed no more to fight anybody. A sort of dull power hung over me, like the cloud of a brooding tempest, and I feared to be told anything. I did not even care to stroke the nose of my pony Peggy, although she pushed it in through the rails, where a square of broader lattices, and sniffed at me, and began to crop gently after my fingers. But whatever lives or dies, business must be attended to, and the principal business of good Christians is, beyond all controversy, to fight with one another." "'Come up, Jack,' said one of the boys, lifting me under the chin. "'He hit you, and you hit him, you know.' "'Pay your debts before you go,' said a monitor, striding up to me, after hearing how the honour lay. "'Vid, you must go through with it.' "'Fight, for the sake of the junior first, cried the little fellow in my ear, the clever one, the head of our class, who had mocked John Fry, and knew all about the aorists, and tried to make me know it, but I never went more than three places up, and then it was an accident.' and I came down after dinner. The boys were urgent round me to fight, though my stomach was not up for it. And being very slow of wit, 
which is not chargeable on me. I looked from one to other of them, seeking any cure for it. Not that I was afraid of fighting, for now I had been three years of blundles, and fortun all that time, a fight at least once every week, till the boys began to know me. Only that the load on my heart was not as sprightly as of the hayfield. It is a very sad thing to dwell on, but even now, in my time of wisdom, I doubt it is a fond thing to imagine, and a motherly to insist upon, that boys can do without fighting, unless they be very good boys, and afraid of one another. Nay, I said, with my back against the wrought iron stay of the gate, which was socketed into Cop's house-front, I will not fight thee now, Robin Snell, but wait till I come back again. "'Take coward's blow, Jack Ridd, then,' cried half a dozen little boys, shoving Bob Snell forward to do it. "'Because they all knew well enough, having striven with me ere now, and proved to be their master. They knew, I say, that without great charge I would never accept that contumely. But I took little heed of them, looking in dull wonderment at John Fry, and Smiler, and the Blunderbuss, and Peggy. John Fry was scratching his head, I could see, and getting blue in the face by the light of the copse parlour window, and going to and fro upon Smiler, as if he were hard set with it. And all the time he was looking briskly from my eyes to the fist I was clenching, and methought he tried to wink at me in a covert manner, and then Peggy whisked her tail. "'Shall I fight, John?' I said at last. "'I would an you had not come, John.' "'Kais will be done. I zim thee had better fight, Jan,' he answered in a whisper, through the gridiron of the gate. There be a dale of fighting avore thee. Best way to begin good tame like. Will the gentleman lat me in, to thee as thee hast fair play, lad? He looked doubtfully down at the colour of his cowskin boots, and the mire upon the horses, for the sloughs were exceedingly mucky. Peggy, indeed, my sorrel pony, being lighter of weight, was not crusted much over the shoulders, but Smiler, our youngest sledder, had been well in over his withers, and none would have deemed him a piebald, save of red mire and black mire. The great blunderbuss, moreover, was choked with a dollop of slough-cake, and John Fry's sad-coloured Sunday hat was endued with a plume of marish-weed. All this I saw while he was dismounting, heavily and wearily, lifting his leg from the saddle-cloth, as if with a sore crick in his back. By this time the question of fighting was gone quite out of our discretion, for sundry of the elder boys, grave and reverend signors, who had taken no small pleasure, who had taken no small pleasure in teaching our hands to fight, to ward, to parry, to feign encounter, to lunge in in the manner of sword-play, and the weaker child to drop on one knee when no cunning offence might baffle the onset, these great masters of the art, who would far liefer see us little ones practise it than themselves engage, six or seven of them had come running down, six or seven of them had come running down the rounded causeway, having heard that there had arisen a snug little mill at the gate. Now whether that word hath origin in a Greek term meaning conflict, as the best red boys are severated, or whether it is nothing more than a figure of similitude from the beating arms of a mill, such as I have seen in counties where there are no water-books, but folk make bread with wind, it is not for a man devoid of scholarship to determine. Enough that they who made the ring entitled to have seen a mill while we who must be thumped inside it tried to rejoice in their pleasantry, till it turned upon the stomach. Moreover, I felt upon me now a certain responsibility, a dutiful need to maintain, in the presence of John Fry, the manliness of the Ridd family, and the honour of Exmoor. 
Hitherto none had worsted me, although in the three years of my schooling I had fought more than three score battles, and bedewed with blood every plant of grass towards the middle of the ironing-box. And this success I owed at first to no skill of my own, until I came to know better, for up to twenty or thirty fights I struck as nature guided me, no wiser than a father long-legs in the heat of a lanthorn. But I had conquered, partly through my native strength, and the Exmoor toughness in me, and still more that I could not see when I had gotten my belly full. But now I was like to have that and more, for my heart was down, to begin with, and then Robert Snell was a bigger boy than I had ever encountered, and as thick in the skull and hard in the brain as even I could claim to be. I had never told my mother about these frequent strivings, because she was soft-hearted. Neither had I told my father, because he had not seen it. Therefore, beholding me, still an innocent-looking child, with fair curls on my forehead, and no store of bad language, John Fry thought this the very first fight that ever had befallen me, and so when they let him in at the gate, with a message to the headmasters, as one of the monitors told Cop, and Peggy and Smiler were tied to the railings, till I should be through my business. John comes up to me with the tears in his eyes, and says, "'Don't he go for to do it, Jan? Don't thee to do it for good now?' but I told him that now it was much too late to cry off. So he said, The Lord be with thee, Jen, and turn thy thumb knuckle inwards. It was not a very large piece of ground, in the angle of the causeways, but quite big enough to fight upon, especially for Christians, who loved to be cheek by jowl at it. The great boy stood in a circle around, being gifted with strong privilege, and the little boys had to leave to lie flat and look through the legs of the great boys. But while we were yet preparing, and the candles hissed in the fog-cloud, old Phoebe, of more than fourscore years, whose room was over the hall-porch, came hobbling out, as she always did, to mar the joy of conflict. No one ever heeded her, neither did she expect it, but the evil was that two senior boys must always lose the first round of the fight, by having to lead her home again. I marvel how Robin Snell felt. Very likely he thought nothing of it always having been a boy of a hectoring and unruly sort. But I felt my heart go up and down as the boys came round to strip me, and greatly fearing to be beaten, I blew hot upon my knuckles. Then pulled I off my little cut jerkin, and laid it down on my head-cap, and over that my waistcoat, and a boy was proud to take care of them. Thomas Hooper was his name, and I remember how he looked at me. My mother had made that little cut jerkin in the quiet winter evenings, and taken pride to loop it up in a fashionable way, and I was loath to spoil it with blood, and good filberts were in the pocket. Then up to me came Robin Snell, mayor of Exeter thrice since that, and he stood very square, and looking at me, and I lacked not long to look at him. Round his waist he had a kerchief busking up his small clothes, and on his feet light pumpkin shoes, and all his upper raiment off and he danced about in a way that made my head swim on my shoulders, and he stood some inches over me. But I, being muddled with much doubt about John Fry and his errand, was only stripped of my jerkin and waistcoat, and not comfortable to begin. "'Come now, shake hands!' cried a big boy, jumping in joy of the spectacle, a third former nearly six feet high. "'Shake hands, you little devils! Keep your pluck up, and show good sport, and Lord love the better man of you!' Robin took me by the hand, and gazed at me disdainfully, then smote me painfully in the face ere I could get my fence up. "'What be bout, lad?' cried John Fry. "'Hutton again, Jan, will he?' 
"'Well done, then, our jamboy!' For I had replied to Robin now, with all the weight and cadence of a penthememoral caesura, a thing the name of which I know, but could never make head nor tail of it. And the strife began in a serious style, and the boys looking on were not cheated. Although I could not collect their shouts when the blows were ringing upon me, it was no great loss, for John Fry told me afterwards that their oaths went up like a furnace fire. But to these we paid no heed or hap, being in the thick of swinging and devoid of judgment. All I know is, I came to my corner, when the round was over, with very hard pumps in my chest, and a great desire to fall away. "'Time is up!' cried Ted Monitor, ere ever I got my breath again, and when I fain would have lingered a while on the knee of the boy that held me. John Fry had come up, and the other boys were laughing because he wanted to stable Lanthorn, and threatened to tell my mother. "'Time is up!' cried another boy, more headlong than head monitor. "'If we count three before the come of thee, frack thou art, and must go to the women.' I felt it hard upon me. He began to count. One, two, three, but before the three was out of his mouth, I was facing my foe, with both hands up, and my breath going rough and hot, and resolved to wait the turn of it for I had found seat on the knee of a boy sage, and skilled to tutor me, who knew how much the end very often differs from the beginning. A rare ripe scholar he was, and now he hath rooted up the Germans in the matter of criticism. Sure the clever boys and men have most love towards the stupid ones. "'Finish him off, Bob,' cried a big boy, and that I noticed especially, because I thought it unkind of him, after eating of my toffee as he had that afternoon. "'Finish him off, neck and crop!' He deserves it for sticking up to a man like you. But I was not so to be finished off, though feeling in my knuckles now as if it were a blueness and a sense of chilblain. Nothing held except my legs, and they were good to help me. So this bout, or round, if you please, was fought and warily by me, with gentle recollection of what my tutor, the clever boy, had told me, and some resolve to earn his praise before I came back to his knee again. And never, I think, in all my life, sounded sweeter words in my ears, except when my love loved me, than when my second and backer, who had made himself part of my doings now, and would have wept to see me beaten, said, "'Famously done, Jack, famously! Only keep your wind up, Jack, and you'll go right through him!' Meanwhile John Fry was prowling about, asking the boys what they thought of it, and whether I was like to be killed, because of my mother's trouble. But finding now that I had fought in three score fights already, he came up to me woefully, in the quickness of my breathing, while I sat on the knee of my second, with a piece of spongious coralline, to ease me of my bloodshed, and he says in my ears, as if he were clapping spurs into a horse, Never thee knack under, Jan, or never come nay hexmore no more. With that it was all up with me, a simmering buzzed in my heavy brain, and a light came through my, and a light came through my eye places. At once I set both fists again, and my heart stuck to me like cobbler's wax. Either Robin Snell should kill me, or I would conquer Robin Snell. So I went in again with my courage up, and Bob smiling for victory, and I hated him for smiling. He let me with his left hand, and I gave him my right between his eyes, and he blinked and was not pleased with it. I feared him not, and spared him not, neither spared myself. My breath came again, and my heart stood cool, and my eyes struck fire no longer. Only I knew that I would die sooner than shame my birthplace. How the rest of it was, I know not, only that I had the end of it, and helped to put Robin in bed.
End of Project Gutenberg's Chapter 2